Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Royfield here. Before we start, we have a new advertiser. Now, before some of you go, ugh, and fast forward a couple of minutes, um, please lend me your ears because this is important because it helps to keep the lights on around here and pay some bills. And this advertiser is also very different. Knowledge of the classics is back in style. You know, it's people like those philosopher authors, people like Homer and Cicero and Spinola, and some of the moderns like Nietzsche as well. Online Great Books is designed to help you to develop a regular habit of reading the great works of Western culture. With weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers, they can help you keep on track and schedule with your reading. OnlineGreatBooks.com has a reading goal system that is designed to help you to progress through reading and the comprehension of the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month they select for you an edition of one of the great books and they will send it directly to your home. They begin with Homer and then progress through the works of Plato, Aristotle, Descartes and then on to the moderns. They even do Shakespeare. So if you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the classics of Western culture, go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ROI. Enter the promo code ROI to get your 25% off your first three months of learning. Enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes. Today we speak to Aziz Eldori of the History of Westeros podcast to ask just why is Game of Thrones so compelling? has become arguably the most successful, most impactful cultural phenomena since The Sopranos. I'm glad you mentioned The Sopranos specifically because I remember about, I think it was four years ago, it was about around the time of Game of Thrones season four when it was announced that Game of Thrones had passed The Sopranos, which it had six seasons. So after only four seasons of Game of Thrones, it had passed The Sopranos for as HBO's most popular show of all time. And of course... Since then, it's only gotten bigger. 
uh, I grew up with Star Wars, and Star Wars is still one of the largest fandoms, if not the largest fandom ever. And I think that a lot of us who grew up with that, it kind of set the stage for other fandoms to become a just a bigger part of, of life, people's day-to-day life, and a way to make friends. And, you know, when I was in high school, you know, being interested in Star Wars and Dungeons and & Dragons and Game of Thrones didn't exist yet, but if it had, it would have been in that category, which is of just... It's pretty uncool. <laughs> you know, those were like nerdy, geeky things. And nowadays, people still call them nerdy, geeky things, but that's now a plus or a badge of honor. It's no longer socially unacceptable. So I think that's a big part of it is that fantasy and sci-fi are more mainstream now and more acceptable. I think a lot of the people who grew up with it, they have, they're adults now and, and they don't have the attitudes that their parents had when they were, you know, parents who didn't grow up with that sort of thing. So there's a different viewpoint on it. You know how each generation takes on a different form of entertainment, but sometimes these things take multiple generations to play out. And with Game of Thrones, I think it's, it owes some uh, debt of gratitude to Harry Potter, which I personally haven't read, but I'm very thankful that it exists because it introduced a lot of people to fantasy, young adults. Uh, Harry Potter was aimed at kids, but it was popular with people of all ages, uh, but especially people who grew up with it, sort of, I wouldn't say they graduated to Game of Thrones because it's not necessarily better. It's just different. And it, it was, but, a, but it is fair to say Game of Thrones was aimed for a more adult audience considering some of the themes in it. And so I think that sort of paved the way. So I think this, this confluence of factors, you have fandoms and geek and nerd culture just being more mainstream. You have several iterations of this happening in past generations. And then you have a story that is that really breaks a lot of these molds and, and is just really well done. I think that's a big part of it. George R. R. Martin's an excellent author. Not all of his excellent writing has made it to the Game of Thrones TV show, but his vision, his world, his creations have. And it's the thing I think that really sets it apart from other fantasy is that the fantasy world isn't the focus at all. It's it's all about the characters. It's all about human stories. It's all about human psychology and believable characters. The, the setting is very unbelievable, but the way the characters react to this unbelievable setting is very realistic. George R. R. Martin is very good at that. He's very good at writing characters of lots of types. He writes women. I wouldn't say he's a great at writing women, but he's better than most male authors at writing women. And he writes children pretty well, and that's really hard to do. So it, so it appeals to a lot of people. And I think you can't just, so like I, so I know I've gone on for a while on this question, but you can't really point to just one thing. There's so many things that's made it popular, and I'm trying to hit the high points. And uh, so those things overlap a lot, too. So I hope that, uh, I hope that explains it without being too wordy. <laughs> Bloody Nora. Aziz, your answer was as long as an episode of the Game of Thrones. Um, you, you obviously do this thing for a living. How the hell have you fallen into making a living out of talking about this show? Well, it's definitely something that I didn't aim to do. It was it got started as just something for fun. Uh, a friend of a friend was starting a Game of Thrones podcast, and I was very obsessed with the books and was excited that the show was making the books a lot more popular. And so I got involved, and we made a couple of episodes, mostly just just talking. And over time, it really grew into something else. We started. I started making doing a lot more research ahead of episodes and writing outlines and eventually that turned into writing full scripts i now write 30 to 40 page scripts for each episode um so yeah what What, 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 how (laughs) just uh, there i mean our episodes are usually an hour and a half to or more usually closer to two hours 
And so I, I usually turn around a 30 to 40 page script in, in about four to five weeks. It's pretty hard, <laughs> but uh, I've gotten better at it over time. <laughs> so tell me about your audience. Okay. So we, you've, you've kind of given us a little bit of an idea about the audience for the show in and of itself. It's kind of old time nerds, young time nerds, people that like a bit of fantasy and kind of an everyman feel now. I think just about everybody on the planet Earth watches it. But who is listening to you pontificate about the show? Good question. Um, I think it's mostly people who are really into it. You know, people who are both enjoy, are very deep in the fandom. They want more. They um, Game of Thrones is you know, so popular and part of what so, makes it so popular is that people can spend a lot of time on it and not, and, and always be talking about different things. It's got a lot of depth to it. There's a lot of different plots and characters and history and, and just, you know, talking about his writing style. There's so many different topics that people find interesting about it. Or you can just you know, talk about TV show stuff like the actors or the sets or the costumes or the weaponry or anything like that. And so, so is this really what you're saying is it's the nerds nerd yes. that listens to your show but there's <laughs> enough of them don't get me wrong there's enough of them that you can yes that's very well put right, it's so. um become huge you know like you said it's so big and that supports you know we don't you know i i would say that we probably haven't even scratched you know we're probably not even i doubt even five percent of the entire game of thrones fandom is aware that we exist so i feel like there's plenty more growth potential too because, you know, as you know, as a podcaster, a lot of people, podcasting's growing as an art, as a, as an outlet. But it's still pretty new on the scene, you know, all things considered. There's still a lot of people that have never listened to a podcast, which kind of blows mm-hmm. my mind. But that's where we're at. <laughs> all right. So let's go back sure. um, a few steps. Um, who wrote this book and what is the general premise of the books? Okay, so the, the author's the author is George R. R. Martin and he is a he's a veteran author. He had written for Hollywood shows as well as you know being a published author before he went to Hollywood. And so he was ex- had some experience writing for TV before he before his show was picked up. Of course, he's only written about 4 of the episodes for Game of Thrones. Um, he certainly his advice and his um, stories were a big part of, you know, being the, the showrunners talked to him quite a lot and got a lot from him, but as actual writing for TV, he does have experience with it, but he only did a little bit of it this time. Um, and uh, basically I guess you could say that he's, he grew up Roman Catholic, um, but is not that anymore. You know, he's one of those, someone that didn't follow along their parents' footsteps with their religious beliefs. And he was, he's from New Jersey. He's uh, grew up kind of poor and he had a very active imagination, read a lot as a kid and just wanted to write very early on in life. He was interested in writing and almost didn't make it, but kind of went for it, you know, kind of did that thing that a lot of, they say you kind of have to do, you really have to dedicate yourself to it and suffer a bit. And he did it, you know, he, he, paid his dues and and you know had to live really poor for a while but he made it and he he wrote for tv and he didn't really like hollywood that much but he he wanted to go back to it and game of thrones apparently that was his path he he decided that epic fantasy was good or could be good after reading i believe it was the a series by tad williams that inspired him it's called the Dragonbone chair memory sorrow and thorn and yeah, what was the critical reception when he, after he wrote the first books and they were published? 
It was very, very strong because it was some of the things I mentioned before about how it was adult and very character based instead of fantasy based. Mm. So he didn't rely on fantasy tropes. He, in fact, loves to shatter them. He loves to uh, set expectations because we're all used to seeing that we've seen certain storylines a million times over in books and TV and movies. And he loves to set people up going down that path and then take a, a left turn and say, no, this isn't, this isn't what I, where I was going. But he also does, but he doesn't just do that exclusively because if he was just to break every trope, well, that would be predictable too. So he does a lot of things that aren't expected. A lot of things that we've gotten used to, and he's kind of shaken us out of that sense of, of normalcy by, doing things differently, having main characters die, having depict, having his beliefs on war being very present in the books in that he thinks that war is awful and terrible and that we shouldn't try to hide its ugly side. So he's very brutal in his depictions of war and the, and the aftermath of war. He's not, he's, he's gotten criticism for depictions of sexual violence. Although I think the TV show is, uh, Deserves a lot more criticism for that, but that's a whole other subject. Because, um, but he, his point of view is that this is realistic and this is what happens in real war and medieval war, and and he tries to be very realistic with his his takes on these things, even though it's not a realistic setting. But, but he wants the characters to behave realistically. So so by transposing uh, human real world human brutality into a fantasy set, he gets to show us, you know, he gets to communicate these ideas without. Um, having to, you know, touch on real people. Um, and I think that's really powerful because it, that, uh, you know, people love to quote Game of Thrones. I think that's something that's really interesting about it. There's, there's a lot of, it's lexicon. A lot of the sayings that come from the books and the show are repeated in daily life. People have just started using them as say, you know, <laughs> like their own personal mottos or, uh, I, I see it all the time. Just people quoting game of Thrones in daily life. And I think that's, uh, well, I think that's a little off topic from your original question, but I think it's interesting. nonetheless. <laughs> all right. So he's not only, um, somebody with a vivid imagination you said that he actually writes characters extremely well whether they're women whether they're children yes, yeah i've never been particularly big into swords and fantasy um which people find somewhat surprising considering i'm massive oh, yeah, I guess that is kind of surprising. <laughs> and I'm a big history oh. nerd but there's something about dragons <laughs> that is Historically, uh, it's kind of put me Yeah. Off. Well, I'll tell you, the dragons are well, not a very big part of the story. Well, l- let, let me just expand. and Let me just finish sure. where I was actually going to go with this. After watching the first uh, episode and we had those wolves yeah. wandering around and, and then these, these kind of people with blue skin and glowing eyes, I remember back in, I think, 2011, 2012, when I I first watched it, I went, I'm I'm, I'm out of this, and and I switched it off. It was only only with the the critical hubbub some 18 months later that I I revisited it and realized I'd made a massive mistake. (laughs) Tell us where exactly um, Martin has uh, drawn his inspiration historically. And I'll tell you the reason why I asked this question, because it took me a long time to realize that actually the world of Westeros and, and Essos, in effect, is 
if I was a 15th, 14th or 15th century occup- uh, occupant of Europe, I, be- I would have believed that dragons existed. This yeah. is the medieval time. So we, we do have um, high skills in terms of metalworking. Um, it's the start of the Renaissance. We have uh, banking in, in Tuscany in Italy, which is in effect bravos etc the you know but i would have believed in magic and i would have believed in dragons and it took me as i said two or three uh years of watching it to realize in effect that that's where he set it in the imagination of people of that time but tell me some of the historical cues that i might have missed where is he drawn from real bits of history which he's then transposed into his world and then maybe given it his own unique spin. Okay, that's a that's a great question, and he is very much a fan and student of history. Though, like any of us, he has his particular interests and maybe some that he doesn't know quite as well. For example, he knows medieval period very well, and Game of Thrones. It's largely set in in a medieval style setting. Obviously, it's also got magic and other stuff like that, but it's at its core very medieval. And but he's got. Other cultures set in other places, like other continents, and those are a little less well done. Um, there's a little, they're a little more tropey, and it's clear that he he's not as big a student of, I don't know, say, Middle Eastern history than he is of European history. Um, but which isn't a criticism, but it's just you know, oh, it isn't like a jab against him. More of just a, it is what it is. It's it's fair to say that he's stronger on things he knows better. I mean, that's that's true for everybody, and. So he's a he's very much written a lot about he's there's a, a lot of the historical events in his series are very much drawn from history, especially European history. As I said, the the basic conflict, the beginning of Game of Thrones is between two houses, the Starks and the Lannisters. And that is very much taken from the Wars of the Roses, which is the Yorks and the Lancasters. And there's a lot of similarities in in the characters there, too. We have Margaret d'Anjou of the Lancaster faction is very much like Cersei Lannister. Her son is a lot like, is, has some vague similarities to Joffrey. Um, they're the Starks, uh, you know, their capital is, you know, York and they're in the North, <laughs> the Northern faction, the Yorkists were the Northern faction and the, and the uh, Lancasters were more in the South. And that also matches Game of Thrones. Then you have England itself. England itself is Westeros flipped 180 degrees, made huge. The veil is Wales. Um, for example, there's the Dornish marches instead of the Welsh marches, and there's Hadrian's Wall instead of the Wall. Right? These are all. And- Wait a minute! I thought the Dornish marches were were the Cornish was Cornwall, Cor- you know, the Cornish lands. Yeah, that's right. They would be. They, they would be. Well, they wouldn't be Cornish. They would be. No, they would be uh, the Welsh marches. They would be north of. Oh, you know, okay. they'd be just like east of. Uh, I forget all those. Welsh names, they're so cool and hard to say. <laughs> Pow- is it Powith? Is Powith the south there? I forget. Well, yeah, no, Powith is definitely in Wales. Anyway, as you were okay, saying, yeah. you're marching through. Forget this. my Welsh geography failure there. Um, the uh, So, and then there's, of course, there's, uh, for example, the the concept of the seven. That's his main religion in Westeros and that's very very much like Roman Catholicism which he, he of course grew up with and there's also 
Boy, there's so many. In fact, I recently did an episode with another history podcaster, uh, Daniele Bellelli, on this very topic. We went through a lot of examples of where he borrowed from history. He borrows from the Mexica, the Az- also known as the Aztecs. Um, the, the original race in his land of Westeros was a, was a race called the Children of the Forest. And they're very much like mm-hmm. Native Americans uh, crossed with... Um, well, northern Native Americans crossed with southern Native Americans in that they use obsidian tools. Uh, they were very big into human sacrifice, and they were they didn't use metalworking. They had a closeness with nature, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those things carry over. Uh, the Ironborn are a race that he has that live on islands, and they're very much like the the uh, the Vikings, uh, the the Viking Age um, Norse and, and Danes and Swedes. Um, so he, he very much likes to build on real, use real world stuff because, like I said, he's trying to make it realistic and there's nothing better than the real world for <laughs> realism. In fact, there's nothing else but the real world for realism. So it's a, it's sort of a shortcut to make sure that it's authentic is to borrow from the real world. And then within that, he's, his, his real creativity shines, as I've been saying, with the characters and the actual story. Um, okay. All right. So. We have this fantasy world which is grounded in real bits of history which are primarily focused on Western Europe, Western European historical lore. Yeah. Okay. And then out of that, then we spin this um, believable fantasy world. One of the things you said beforehand, Savannah, is very interesting is that you said that he's really good at writing women. I'm really struck with how, from the original um, two, three seasons of the TV series, it was a little bit of a boobs and ass fest. Yeah, you know, don't get me wrong; <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't wall to wall, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't kind of look out for a little bit of a you know uh, naughtiness, and that was definitely a selling point of it. And I'm really struck by by the time we get to season seven. There is less forward slash none of that, but also that the female characters, in effect, are driving the whole thing, with the exception maybe of Jon Snow. It seems to me that it's all about sisters doing it for themselves. So can you maybe take us through the main female characters and maybe how they've developed throughout the series? And actually, and I think that's one of the key reasons why, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, this series is actually okay so great compelling. question um the let's see how to approach it there's a lot of a lot of things i can say about this the first of all i, I want to reiterate that i think that most of the time um people write what they know what better than anything else so of course i think a man is going to write male characters better than he writes female characters and vice versa that and i do think he's good at writing women but that still comes with that caveat that he's not one and that makes it harder but uh, I think it, he he tried really hard to give it that appeal, and he tried really hard to show. And this is a reflection of history. History is written by the winners. That's an old cliche, right? But it's at least partially, if not mostly, true. And the fact, but it's also true to say history is written by men, and that's not, you know, it's 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 accurate to say that, but it's not fair to to look at history entirely through a male lens, which is challenging because that's most of what we have. The sources are mostly masculine. So it's a it's a weird challenge, but I think George has really touched on this a lot and shows that 
history omits a lot of powerful women and there's people behind the scenes that like when you see someone like Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or I don't know, a lot of these powerful people, maybe modern presidents are more appropriate. Um, some of these like old school ancient kings maybe weren't answerable to anybody. But, you know, some of these modern politicians, they have a lot of people giving them advice and talking in their ear and pushing them this way or another. And I think that that's going to be the case throughout history. There's a t- all sorts of world leaders were had things going on behind the scenes, whether it was their spouse or their family, or maybe they had some hidden drug addiction or something like that, that, that really had a huge impact on history that we don't know. We, we can be sure that these things exist, but we don't know the specifics. We, you know, um, so I think that's a big part of this is that George is saying, Hey, look, a lot, there's a lot, there were a lot of powerful women in history that didn't get written about because the men wrote the history and because they didn't properly understand how important, how big these influences were, like how important these decisions were. You know, we we were finding out just as a random American political example, we found out way past his presidency that Nancy Reagan had a a much bigger role in Ronald Reagan's decision-making than anyone had thought. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just a thing. The point isn't whether her advice was good or bad. The point is that she had a big influence on him at all. And that's not something that anyone can quantify. We just know it happened. So I think that George is is doing that a bit here with Game of Thrones and showing that a lot of these powerful women were not only written out of the history books, but they were maligned by the history books. There's like, if anyone who's read a lot of Roman history knows that there's this ridiculously often recurring trope of the wicked stepmother. It's just insane how often... There's a mystery and a historical mystery that gets blamed on a woman. <laughs> They're like, ah, oh, it must have been the woman. You know, it just, that's so common and it really needs to be pushed back against. So uh, so I think there's a lot of appeal um, because George is, is dealing with that. And he's also just on a more surface level. Yeah, there's a lot of, like you said, there's, the women are becoming the queens and the, the, the rulers and driving the action for quite a lot of it. And uh, that, you know, that stands out because, you know, just like history is mostly written by men, uh, most TV shows are written by men and uh, the male characters are more believable than the female characters because they're written by men. You know, if you have a woman writing female characters, they're probably going to be more believable. (laughs) And I think Game of Thrones, the TV show suffers from that. They, They do not have a great mix in their writer's room of diversity. And I think that's a bit of a problem. One thing they do have in their wheelhouse, though, is the ability to translate what's in the book on an epic scale. You know, a lot of money is being spent uh, not only on the costumes. You kind of mentioned some some way beforehand, but on the settings. And obviously there is uh, a lot of CGI, yeah. but, it, but it feels seamless. It doesn't feel like you're, you're, you're watching a whole load of <laughs> watching visuals are being put together by computers. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of, and that's kind of underscored, uh, pun intended, by the score, isn't it? So it, the way that the music is, is kind of used, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that and, uh, and, some, uh, and how some of these evocative music has actually ma- even made it onto screen. That's a fantastic question. I'm really glad you asked it. Not not only do I have a background in music myself, but I am a, just just as of two days ago, I started discussing with a couple of 
uh, people in um, I'm doing a I'm going to a convention in Dallas a couple a couple months from now called Con of Thrones and I'm on a you, panel. You do surprise me, please. You do <laughs> surprise me. A guy like you will be going to a nerd convention. <laughs> right. But as you were saying, go on. Not only going me, to, but I'm one of the presenters. I'll be a panelist, and uh-huh. one of the panels I'm on is Sounds of Westeros, where we talk this specific topic about how the music in the show has added so much to it. And I, I have my my degree is in classical guitar. So, of course, I have some thoughts on this. Um, I think that it's amazing how much music in general adds to any TV or movie movie production. And I I often want to tell people, just imagine those scenes without any music at all. For example, I just rewatched this certain important scene where a certain character's heritage is revealed. And another, there's a flashback where someone's dying. And it's a very emotional moment. And right at this most the key line that comes straight from the books that's been something that some people who are who love the books as much as I do have been waiting to see on screen for literally 20 years it was highly emotional and at that point it's this incredibly sad sustained violin note that's just clearly designed to be as tear jerky as possible <laughs> and man they're good at it the the comp- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Composer Raman Jawadi, he's a graduate of Berkeley College of Music, which is an amazing school, and uh, he's also written the theme song to Westworld, which is another great mu- piece of music. And he's written most of the music that comes in the show, as well as the theme song. And yeah, I couldn't say enough about it. I would just gush about it. It's really incredible, and there's a lot of depth to it. There's there's subtlety. There's certain characters that have music that applies only to them. This is this is done. You know, Star Wars does this. Luke has a song, Ray has a song, things like that. And, you know, the Empire has its song, the Imperial March, and, and they do that to set the mood. You know, you know, when you hear that song playing, that Star Wars Imperial March, when you hear that play, it's unmistakable. And part of it is the the engineering of that song. It was so well written. The quality is is a huge part of that. John Williams is an amazing composer. Ron Raman Jawadi is an amazing composer, but from a newer generation. He's young, and John Williams is in his 80s. And uh I just think that it's really hard to put into words how much it adds to it, but you can't say enough about it. It's just, it, it's a giant part of it. And it really, it even affects, it's funny, it even affects non-humans. <laughs> it's, I've seen, you know, sounds, the way they impact <laughs> us subconsciously is such a strange thing. At one point in the show, there's a scene where there's a baby crying and the baby's cries are sustained for a while. Mm. Uh, we have cats, and two of our cats became very interested in that sound, and they were circling the TV, like, searching for the source of this sound. <laughs> because they were concerned. It's like, even the cats were concerned about this baby crying. And that's not even music, but it just shows you how deep that sounds can touch us, you know, because at a very basic human level, the sound of a baby crying is, that's 
that has meaning. That touches us. It's like, especially the uh, baby crying, not crying because he's upset, crying because he's scared. You know, that's that touches everyone. I think you got to be, you basically have to be a bit of a sociopath to not have that at least tickle your 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 insides a little bit. <laughs> oh no, no, we're obviously programmed, aren't yeah. we, to to react to someone to something that is defenseless, you know, in distress, and uh, you know, you you can't be a a human being, at least a functioning one, without having having that reaction. So I'm glad we're taking a, a significant turn down the music route right here because when I was a hip, cool teenager and things that were nerdy were incredibly unhip, i.e. Dungeons and Dragons, those kind of board games and people reading um, fantasy books, they all seem to be into heavy rock and heavy metal. That, 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 common, these yeah. two disparate things seem to overlap. Why is this? Why is it that people who have this fondness for this uh, form of music, which as far as I'm concerned, right, and I say this somewhat mm-hmm. tongue-in-cheek, has gone down a musical cul-de-sac <laughs> so like this world of swords <laughs> and magic and wizards? Well, I would say, you know, uh, I guess my experience hasn't quite been the same. I know a lot of people who aren't into that style of music at all, but it, it is very common. I'll definitely agree with that. Um, I, I think maybe it's because um, popular music, mainstream music, is usually about emotions and feelings, um, maybe about relationships. The most common would be the most common theme, like love stories, whereas metal songs uh, typically are telling stories. So and I think that's the appeal mm-hmm. because I mean this is this is the appeal of fantasy in the first place is stories that's that's what people like they like the stories they like the escape into another world and a lot of metal and heavy rock that's all, that's what they're about they're about telling stories they're not writing lyrics about how someone made them feel or about their life experiences they're telling stories and I I prefer that I would much rather hear a story than to hear about someone's relationship <laughs> problems you know. <laughs> Uh, that, that says nothing about the music behind it all. I'm just speaking about the well, lyrics, but yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, let's yeah. put the lyrics to one side, because I am the type of person that actually doesn't listen to the <laughs> lyric of any piece of music. that, uh, Or more to the point, okay. I don't critically listen to it. I make that small, you know, so you, you hear the refrain. Yeah, hard know, not the, to hear the chorus. And you right, go, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, don't you want your baby, don't you want your baby. You go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not listening to, to the verses. So so what is it about those thrashing guitars and those loud drums and this, this guy wailing on top <laughs> of, of this dreadful music that so resonates with people that, that, that like a bit of sword and fantasy? Go on, tell me. Explain this to me, sir. Okay, um... It's difficult for me to explain that. I, in, for, in terms of my own self, I can I can ex- probably explain it better from my own point of view. I am also this as as someone who grew up um, playing classical guitar. I'm also the son of a viola professor. My mother is the viola professor at Florida State, mm-hmm. and so I grew up. And she had me very young. Uh, so she and she practices relentlessly. Now, classical music and and heavy metal have a lot in common. Uh, some people don't like to hear that, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, of course, the sounds and the tones are very different, but the the musically, as far as uh, structurally, very similar. Um, the, the styles of, of note usage and theory are, are have a lot in common. Uh, also, the storytelling aspect. You don't see classical music pieces usually aren't written about someone's 
feelings about their lover. Sometimes they are, but it's you're usually larger, grander topics or, or you know, like operas or whatever. It's epic kind of things. Uh, but I think it's also just it's energy. You know, I I, I grew up hearing uh, I grew up hearing drums and and heavy music. Uh, even my, my mother is a violist, but I still heard these. I I, I glommed onto the minor key stuff. I like minor key music more than major key. I like sad music. I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, but I also really like low sounds. I love bass. I love uh, down-tuned guitars. You know, I love, I, I, when I play guitar, I t- tune Aziz. down. Aziz. No, 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 yeah. no. Aziz, listen, listen. I understand you know music inside <laughs> out, right? Why is it, right, that these two genres have this massive cross crossing over point not mm. on about you right and, and your musical history here because you've nominated this yeah. for us the sword and take to take the black right so that is that's when uh, people go yes. up to the wall isn't it you you've banished to, to the wall yes. you take the black and this is for me symptomatic of those classic nerds yeah. i'm not on about the new nerds you know the johnny come lately's that are kind of now in into the tv show mm. i wasn't aware of these books beforehand okay. so i'm one of these new nerds okay and arguably i'm a dilettante nerd because i don't know all the all the the mythos behind game of thrones you know i'm, I'm mildly interested in it but yeah. i don't know it okay so as we said right your podcast um you could argue that it's the it's the nerds nerds kind of podcast but you are somewhat engaging and forceful yes. advocate for the show right but i'm imagining there's a lot of people that um read the books before there's a tv series sat around in <laughs> iron maiden t-shirts thinking about you know <laughs> death to leopard etc and then when i listen to the sword to take the black you know all of my prejudices are writ large so let's have a quick listen to that and let's come back
Right, so explain what I just heard there, because what I heard was, was a whole load of guys, white guys with long hair, pretending it was the early 1980s. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. That is actually they're pretending to cross between the 80s and the 60s. That The bands that, that the sword most emulate are Metallica and Black Sabbath. So and of course Black Sabbath oh, predates wow. the eighties, you know, and of course Metallica is very much eighties. So I would say that's a big part of it. But there's an evolution in metal music to um move away from standard guitar tunings, uh to get lower, to to you know, go from the standard guitar as most guitars are tuned to E and they have them all the way down at C. So a whole full two ha- full two whole steps lower. And that's what Black Sabbath did. Black Sabbath was in C-sharp standard, which is only a half step higher than the sword. So, and that, at the time, was very new. It was very different sound. And interestingly, though, it was very popular, it wasn't copied very much. Not a lot of other people did it. So I think that it was more of a, maybe a delay. It was a more of a, you know how a lot of trends are cyclical like that. Uh, music and, and trends and a lot of things kind of come back. <laughs> These guys dressed like they were from the 70s in the early 2000s. But they, and they were playing music from that was a cross between the 60s and the 80s. So they're very much throwbacks, but their sound uh, is a little bit modified from, you know, where it, it's, it's an extension of something that came earlier. As far as why it speaks to other geeks and nerds, that's tough. Besides the story thing, I don't I don't really know. I, I'm kind of stumped. I I, I I just don't know. I think it's just, it might, might be just the camaraderie, like, you know, hey, that guy kind of looks like me, you know, long haired dude with an Iron Maiden shirt. Maybe that's part of the appeal. Uh, that doesn't explain why people like the music, but it does maybe explain how they decided to give it a try. In fact, I gave the sword a try because of the title of that song. My friend was like, hey, I think this song is about Game of Thrones. And I'm like, oh, well, I better listen to that. And two years later, I befriended those guys, I, I hit them up said, hey, next time you guys are in town for a show, I want to meet you guys. And that happened. And that was in 2008. So every time I come to town, I get to hang out with them now. Yeah, I'm a groupie. <laughs> You're a sword groupie. Listen, man, before yeah. you got into this whole world of the, of the Game of Thrones, the songs of fire and ice, what were you doing other than playing your classical? <laughs> well, I got into the books in 2001. The first book came out in 1996. So I was, you know, a good 10 years before the TV show. And I was an IT consultant back then. I was uh, traveling a lot. All makes yeah. sense. All makes right? sense. Of course. Now. Poker player, guitarist, IT consultant. That all. That's all. Just, just a quick step. Poker player? <laughs> right. Yes. That's right. That was my Listen, I got fleeced. I got fleeced about three months ago. Some guy befriended me in a cafe. He says, do you want to come around uh, to, to a man's evening? And uh, I said, <laughs> Yes. New to America, needed to make friends, and I was fleeced. It was only a twenty dollars <laughs> steak, so That's don't get don't get me wrong, right? But give me one tip as a mm, novice poker okay. player for me to not lose my shirt. Uh, if you're a novice poker player, don't talk. Don't talk. Just keep quiet. <laughs> people will try to, you know, when you see people poker on TV or uh, you see people playing around maybe you see people in a home game what when some people, when people are trying to get other people to talk they ask them really mundane questions they're trying to get they just want uh-huh. to hear what you say they don't care what the words are they want to hear how you say it they want to, they're trying so, to read your body language so so 
you want to not give them that. So it could be a question like, who is your favorite character on Game of Thrones? That type of thing. Just <laughs> yeah, because like, they're going to judge how you answer, like how loose you are when you answer, how talkative you are. It's a standard, you know, you've heard the term tell. T- being talkative is a sign of bluffing. Being uh, being quiet is a sign of, of not bluffing. So uh, of being serious. Because you don't want to, the, 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 sub, the psychology behind that is a person who, when you want someone to put their money in because you have a big hand and are, and are hoping that they fall for it, you don't want to give them any, subconsciously, you don't want to give them any hint. So you, you people tend to just shut down. But when you're trying to fool someone, you tend to try to sell them on it. And that's just human nature. That's not, not, not nearly everybody works this way, but it's very common. And I'll give you a second one that's even easier to detect. People who put their hand over their mouth. If you put your hand over your Damn. mouth, that is a very, very... Standard human tell for dishonesty, putting your hand over your mouth. So if someone's putting their hand over the mouth, mm. they're strongly considered that they're bluffing. It's when they're, especially if they're, t- especially if they say something and cover their mouth, especially if their hands over the mouth while they're pushing their chips in, that's a big one. You mentioned this before, and and, and it's a, like a theme for me, which is kind of just reoccurred in my head because mm. of what you just said there. But about kind of misdirection, and one of the things which. Um, I've absolutely enjoyed about Game of Thrones is the apparent misdirection. So you've got the supposed union of the Starks and, and the Freys, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. out of nowhere, you've got this bloodbath. <laughs> and I remember my jaw dropping. I didn't know what the hell I was watching. And then, and, and it just felt like it is incredibly random. But it's but it's the multi layered nature of the storytelling and the in-depthness of the storytelling that when you go and watch it the second and the third time you see all the clues yes yes quite a few and in fact he does that on purpose the showrunners do it to a lesser degree but george r R. martin regularly in his books gives you the answer to a mystery before he even lets you know that there is a mystery so he designed the book to be Mm. read more than once and that is I've read them more times than I can count, and I'm still finding new things, you know, 20 years later. So um, that shows that, which is part of the reason I can do this for a living, is that, that we just keep finding new things. The depth is there. Our fans know that the depth is there, and they know that there's, you know, so much to find, so much to talk about. And of course, whenever we get new material, whenever a new book comes out, it's going to be gangbusters. It'll be the number one bestseller overnight. And uh, but, but, but Aziz, you, you don't need the final book do you because you know exactly how it's all going to end because you've read this thing um intently uh numerous times you've worked out all the clues so so tell us (laughs) right are (laughs) are khaleesi and john gonna get it on even though they're what aren't and yeah i think what's so funny about this is that they're such beautiful people in real life you know very attractive people and you hear them interviewed about it and they're like they both visibly get shaken. They're like, "Ooh, it's so gross!" You know, he's my, you know, he's my cousin, or he's my, he's my aunt, you know, or she's my aunt, and you know, they, so they're like, "Have you guys seen each other? How are you grossed out about these scenes together?" <laughs> so, but yeah, it's it's weird because that's such a creepy concept in general, incest, and there's plenty of it in the Game of Thrones. All these royal dynasties throughout history are very incestuous. They're mar- there's cousin marriages all over the place. And they're not brother and sister marriages. Well, there are in some cases, like, say, the Ptolemies um, and other examples. But 
So that does even, even that does happen, but just so many cousin marriages and all that stuff. Sure. I, I've completely lost the thread here. I started talking about incest and it just, <laughs> well, that's what talking about incest will do. Right? <laughs> so, so, the, so, so, so the question is just as we, as we wrap up, you've read these books over and over and you've spotted, you've now spotted the clues that uh, Martin puts in, in his books, in his stories for to reveal mysteries, to give us the answer for mysteries before he's even told us that there is a mystery, right? So what all of us want to know is, A, which is the reason why you're talking about incest and the Ptolemies, right? A, are the aunt and the nephew going to get it on? B, what's going to happen to the Iron Throne? Because my brother, who's a somewhat of a student of this, has a theory, and his theory goes like this, is that actually because the Iron Throne is made up of Valerian steel, and then all the White Walkers are coming over coming over the wall here in, into Westeros, that symbolically the Iron Throne is going to have to be denuded of its Valerian steel uh, because that's the one thing that can kill them. So there's going to be, in effect, a republic. No, hang on. Oh, okay. back, back, let's let's right. back up. That, it's, not, it's not Valerian oh. steel, the Iron Throne. It's, it's regular steel. Can I tell my brother's wrong? yeah but but, valerian yeah it's just regular steel it was melted by a dragon the 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 throne was forged by dragon fire but it's just regular steel basically all the people he defeated when conquering westeros he took all the swords and melted it to make a throne it's very symbolic of his defeated enemies but uh but but that's a very neat and symbolic way isn't it because it's it's a game of thrones everyone's fighting to be on the throne you know, if we can take, you know, we strip it of its of its swords, the thing which physically make, makes it, defeat the enemy, there is no throne, and the houses are vanquished. The houses are liquidated. Yeah. It's a republic. It's the people. Isn't it um, uh, Lord, Lord Varys that basically says he serves, he serves yes. the state and nobody sits yes. on it? There you go. And then he becomes the, the you know, the, the <laughs> president or the, the the first consul of uh, the 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 kingdom of Westeros. I think that'd be a perfect end. I think that that's actually a fairly well regarded theory that there won't be an Iron Throne. Oh, thank you. The Iron Throne won't be there at the end. That they'll have a new system of government. Something else will happen. So yeah, you've kind of that's that's a good catch because I think that's um I'm, I'm a believer in that as well. I think that I have a, people ask me who's going to sit on the Iron Throne at the end. That's a real common question we get. And I have a guess for that, but I also have a. But my main guess is that no one will. But it, but I also have a copy. Well, if I'm wrong, then I think it'll blankety blank. And then, you know, that's it's kind of how those conversations go. But yeah, I don't think that. Uh, I think that um, it's important to note that that uh, about the Iron Throne. You say it's a it's a really neat way of of making a symbol for conquest. It's and it's it goes a little deeper than that because the Iron Throne it's forged from swords. It, it you can just sitting on it you can get cut <laughs> you can it, it's still sharp and he and that's that's the <laughs> egg on the conqueror who forged that throne his his words were a king should not rest easily he should never sit you know should never be comfortable in at the, on the throne that's like ah that's really clever that's a really cool that's a really good red metaphor it's like yeah because kings who are too passive or to you know who aren't ruling their kingdom who aren't taking an active role in leading their kingdom probably aren't very good king you know and uh so I think that's uh, that's pretty cool. I like I like that uh, the way he worked that in there. 
Aziz, thank you for coming on to Friday to explain your your passion for this cultural phenomenon. And also, you know what? I don't think you rest too easy on your laurels either, <laughs> do you? So whether it's uh, you're sitting on an iron throne, you're a podcaster who displays great passion for the subject of your podcast. Thank thanks you. for coming thank on, you. man. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a good show. I like your get, ask a lot of good questions. Um, I know that uh, I know anytime I go off and speak for several minutes and kind of forget what the question was. I know it must have been a good question because it got me to say so many different things. <laughs> <laughs> Lion Babe is an American alternative R&B duo hailing from New York City. It consists of singer Gillian Hervey and producer Lewis Goodman. Treat Me Like Fire features a warm, constant vinyl record crackle. It was released in 2012.
back, give me feedback, you want to email me, and possibly even get on the show, you can do that by emailing me at royfield at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm not great on the platform, but I am at Royfield on Twitter. And of course, you can go all the way over to Facebook and you can find Friday 15 there. Oh, one last thing. Be awesome if you could write us a little bit of a review on iTunes or on a podcatcher of your choice. See you all again in seven days time on another Friday. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.